Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 8. Brief psalm, just nine verses, but a profound one of cosmic significance. Psalm 8 may not be familiar to you by its number reference, uh, chapter 8, but I think the opening line will be, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's a familiar psalm, and this morning I hope that it will reveal to us not only what is familiar and comforting about it, but also new depths that we may not have appreciated before. So hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Lord, our Lord, we ask that you would show us your majesty through these words this morning, that you would reveal to us the resplendent glory of your crown. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. When you contemplate the words that we just heard and you ask yourself, what is this song about? What is the the motif, the theme, the thread that runs through it? I think it's fair to say that Psalm 8 is a song about God's generosity, about how open-handed, how kind God is. This is a psalm that celebrates his majesty, as the opening words obviously suggest. And notice, too, in the form of the psalm, that those opening words in verse 1 are repeated in verse 9 at the end. Exactly the same, word for word. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's the beginning of the song. And then at the end, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That repetition is what interpreters call an inclusio. It's a literary technique that's meant to show that everything in between goes together. And it gives a kind of uh, full circle quality, a fulfillment quality to the song that is between the bookends, as it were. But what's significant about the line isn't that it's repeated, it's the content of the line as well. O Lord, our Lord. Now, as we've seen already in the Hebrew Bible, the words translated here in English, O Lord, our Lord, suggest a repetition that is not present in the original. In the Hebrew, if we were transliterating, we would read something like Yahweh our Adonai. So Yahweh, the covenant name of God, 
is our Lord. That confession of faith, Yahweh is Lord, is one you find over and over again in the Psalms. And then, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Your name. Sometimes this will be translated your reputation because name has the sense in Hebrew culture of your standing or your reputation. But there's a power in the name of God that he has revealed to us. There's a majesty in that name. When we use the word majesty, sometimes we think of it as a synonym for, let's say, excellent or awesome or something like that. So we're saying, oh God, how awesome your name is, how wonderful your name is. All of that is true to an extent, but majestic implies something that those other words don't, which is a royal quality, majesty, right? How royal, how full of kingly splendor is your reputation. So specifically, we are praising God for his kingship when we praise him for his majesty. And in the psalm, what's fascinating here is it begins by praising God for his kingship, for his majesty, and then it expresses awe at the generosity of such a majestic God who cloaks human beings in that majesty. God, who is so high above us, somehow has come down and cloaked us in this majesty that you would have expected was his alone. This song of God's generosity praises the way that God has used his lofty power in order to elevate the least of us, to raise us up despite how humble we were. And in doing that, Psalm 8 reveals something about the character of God. It tells us something about who he is and what he likes the way God likes to be, his personality, if you will. You get to know people well, your friends, and you get a sense for the kind of stuff they like and the way that they might behave. So that if I tell you a story about a friend of yours and I say, oh, guess what he did, and I tell you the story, sometimes you think, oh, that's just like him. He's always doing stuff like that. Other times you hear a story about a friend of yours, and you're like, well, that seems out of character. I'm a little surprised to hear that. Well, the character of God that is revealed in Psalm 8, what it says about what he likes to do, the kind of thing God likes to do, he likes to exalt the humble. He likes to to dwell among the least of these and lift them up. That's the kind of God he is. That's the kind of thing he loves to do. There are some nuances in the psalm that, that help bring out some of the meaning. If we look at the original Hebrew, I'm just going to give these to you immediately. We'll get it out of the way. We're just going to look at some of the linguistic stuff, and then we're going to move on. Just two things. There's a lot more than two things we could talk about. We're going to talk about two things that are important. The first one is in verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When you hear that line, that may sound a little bit familiar but it's, it gets less familiar as it goes because when you think of what comes out of the mouth of, of babies and infants and you've got your New Testament uh, lens on, it's not strength that you're thinking of. It's something else. Right? What is it that comes from the mouth of babies and infants? It's praise. So what's going on here? Well, in the Hebrew, 
the word is strength, and it's translated here in the ESV as strength. But here's what's interesting. In the Septuagint, which is the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, when they came to translate this word, they translated it as praise. Now, you could say, well, maybe they just got it wrong. But I don't think that's what's going on. I think they're picking up on a nuance of the language. There's something about the use of strength here that conveys in the ancient Hebrew this idea of praise, and they're picking up on that. And the reason why I insist that they didn't just make a mistake is that in the New Testament, when Jesus, among others, quotes Psalm 8, he uses the word praise. I don't think Jesus got it wrong. If you look in your Bible at Matthew 21, Psalm 8 is quoted at a a key moment. In Matthew 21, the story of the triumphal entry is narrated, where Jesus enters into Jerusalem. He's welcomed as a king, as the son of David, and the people sing Hosanna, and they praise him. Then he goes on in Matthew's account. He cleanses the temple, and he does these wonderful things. And then there is the backlash that the chief priests and the scribes criticize him for permitting this praise. And and here's how Jesus responds. So this is Matthew 21, starting in verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? I love the way Jesus handles their objection here. It's like, do you guys not read the Bible? Are you not familiar with the scripture? You should expect exactly what you're seeing. The implication of Jesus's quote is that the chief priests and the scribes are the same people that Psalm 8 describes as foes. They are the agents of the enemy and avenger from Psalm 8 too. And by contrast, the believers who are crying out, Hosanna, these are the children that are being spoken of. Now, they're children in an interesting sense. They're children not because they they are all really young. It's not that the the temple is flooded with, with little children physically. They're infants in their faith. They are the lowliest people. They are people without power, without status. They're the least of these. And the greatest, the the chief priests and the scribes are saying, you should silence them. But they don't understand the character of God. But God hasn't sent his son into the world to silence the least of these. He has sent Jesus into the world to exalt them and to lift them up. The proud priests and scribes oppose King Jesus but the humble children praise him. It's another nuance in verse 4 that I want you to take a look at. Now, verse 4 states kind of the big question of the psalm. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? But the verb that is translated here, mindful of him, can be translated a little more literally. And if we translate it literally, We recognize it as our old friend from last week. The verb there in Hebrew is zakar, which is to remember. If you recall, last time we talked about the use of this word remember and how it has these covenantal connotations. 
For example, in Exodus 2.24, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So oftentimes when we speak of God remembering, what you want to do is kind of make this adjustment in your mind and think, ah, we're talking about God being faithful to his covenant promises over the course of centuries. So here when the psalmist says, what is man that you remember him? You should be thinking, oh, what is man that you should keep covenant with him? What is man that you should make promises to him and keep them? And that's reinforced in the next line, the verb that is translated, uh, the son of man that you care for him, literally rendered would be the son of man that you visit him. That you visit him. In the way that God visited our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. In the way that God, according to the Westminster Confession of Faith, In chapter 7, which we're studying now in adult Sunday school, has visited us by closing the distance between the creator and the creature and doing it by means of covenant. So some covenant resonance there in the language. So whether we're talking about strength, dominion, kingdom, or covenant, God's promise, salvation, we see that God exalts the humble. In other words, God exalts us. There's a joy, there's a wonder at the heart of this psalm when you sing these words. If you were trying to express it in layman's terms, if you're trying to simplify it, uh, we might simplify it this way, just the simple expression, look what God has given you. Look what God has given you. Sure, man is humble. Man is nothing. Man is a speck. And yet, look what God has given. When we contemplate the distance between the creator and the creature, when we look up at the stars, how infinite and vast they are, and we think about how small and insignificant we are in comparison, you could ask yourself, if God is so great, then how can a speck like me matter to him? And oftentimes, we convince ourselves that we don't matter to him, that we can't matter to him. It's just not possible. And when we think along those lines and we ask that question, we are treading familiar ground. We're asking the same question that David asks here in this psalm. How is it possible for God to remember us? How is it possible that he would visit us? Because do we really matter that much? It's easy if you're looking at yourself to convince yourself that you don't matter. In order to gauge your worth, you have to ask yourself what God thinks of you. And you know that you matter because of what he has given to you. The psalmist says that you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. However worthless we might feel in and of ourselves, because of what God has bestowed upon us, we are, as human beings, of uncalculable worth. But what has God given us? As we see in verse 4, one of the things he's given us is covenant. The greatest gift that God has given to us is knowledge of God. Not just intellectual knowledge of God, but personal knowledge of God. That we can know him as he knows us. He came down to us. He revealed himself 
to us. He bound himself to us with unbreakable promises. That's what he's given to us, even though we were humble. He's given us more than that, though. Not only has he given us this covenant relationship, but he has given us dominion. He has made us kings. He has given you dominion over the rest of creation. In the words of the psalm, he has crowned you with glory and honor. This makes us think back to Genesis 1, when God contemplates the creation of the human race, male and female. He makes them in his image, and he gives them dominion over the works of his hand. Genesis 1.28, God says to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And the words of Psalm 8 echo that gift of dominion. So as humble as you are, as a human being, you are in covenant with the God who made all things. You've been singled out for this special relationship and you've been given dominion over all creation. You are a king. You have been crowned by your creator. In other words, you have been exalted. Look at what God has given us. What God has given us is majestic. Of course, once we see it, we have to realize what we've done with what God has given us is not what we ought to have done. Look at what God has given us, but look at what you've done with it. In the parable of the talents in Luke 19, a principle is illustrated that it matters to God what we do with the gifts that he's given us. That God does not give us gifts simply so that we might have things He gives gifts so that they might be used. And there is this underlying tension in Psalm 8. As we see the gifts that God has lavished upon us, we are awestruck by what God has given. Inevitably, there's this accusing voice in the back of your mind saying, (laughs) right, but look what you've done with it. Look what a mess you've made of it. What have we done with the gift that God has given, the gift of covenant? We've been unfaithful. To him. If you look in the book of Hosea, chapter 6, prophet Hosea says something interesting. This is, in Hosea 6, God is talking about the unfaithfulness of his people. And here are the words that he speaks. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. God has given us the gift of covenant, and we have been unfaithful to him. We have turned our backs on him. The story of unfaithfulness is familiar to us from the Old Testament, but it doesn't start with Israel. It starts with Adam and Eve. It starts with humanity itself. From the beginning, we have been unfaithful to the God who has bound himself in faith to us. It's amazing to think that God, as creator, bridged this great distance in order to enter into relationship with human beings. But through our sin, we found a way to put distance between us again. God came all this way, and yet instead of communing with him, 
through our disobedience, we found a way to keep him at arm's length. That's what we've done with the gift of covenant. We've been unfaithful. And with the gift of dominion, what have we done? With the power that he's given us over creation, we have abused the power that he gave us. If you look in Luke's gospel in chapter 22, Jesus compares the way fallen human beings use power and the way he does. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. As obsessed as we are as a culture with power dynamics, reducing everything down to a question of power and oppression, the fact is we still don't get it. The evidence that we don't get it is the way that we try to fix the problem. We see that there's a problem with power, but to fix it, what we seek is a new distribution of power rather than a new approach to wielding it, which Jesus models. When Jesus comes in the form of a servant, he's not redefining what it means to have power. He's not deconstructing power relationships. He's illustrating how power was meant to be used in creation. He's showing us what true authority looks like, and it looks like service. What a depressing psalm it would be if it ended there. God crowned a king, and instead of ruling justly, he abused his power, and he dishonored his crown. It would be like ending the story of Israel with King Saul and going no further. But honestly, many of you do stop there. If you think about it, you see the world as a failed experiment, something that started with good intentions but is now beyond hope. I think the problem with authority is not that it can be abused, but that it exists at all. You think there's wisdom in just shrugging at how bad the world is and expecting it to be even worse. You don't want a king. You're against kings. You certainly don't want a kingdom. You think it would be better if no one wore the crown. That's not the way God tells the story. That's not what God does. When a bad king is anointed and crowned and rules badly and abuses his power, God doesn't end the story there and accept it. God anoints a better king. The king Saul's of the world are followed by King David. And this is why you need to see that what Psalm 8 points to is not just the, the, the glory that should have been ours, but was lost through sin. It points to what was restored in Christ. It invites us to look at what Christ has done for us. In Hebrews 2, we discover that this is a song about Jesus himself. The author of Hebrews writes, starting in verse 5, It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. He quotes the psalm, and then he explains it. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. 
At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Look at what Christ has done for you. What has Christ done for you? He's kept the covenant for you. God gave us his promise of salvation, and we dishonored and and disobeyed. But Jesus came and did it for us. Jesus, the second Adam, did what the first Adam failed to do. He kept the promise on our behalf. And his faithfulness is counted to all those who believe. In an interesting way, although we talk about salvation by grace and not by works, salvation is by works. The question is, whose works gain salvation? The answer is the works of Jesus Christ and no one else. And that obedience of Christ becomes ours through faith. By having faith in Jesus, we become one of his children, one of his people, one of his brothers and sisters. And all that he possesses becomes ours. So that we're judged not based on our sin, not on our disobedience. We are judged based on his obedience. That's what Christ has done for us. He has kept the covenant for us. And he's done more than that. Jesus has restored the kingdom to us as well. What was lost through disobedience is restored by grace. We are crowned in him. And to prove that now we understand, what we do with those crowns is we cast them at his feet. Because in Christ's kingdom, which he has inaugurated and brought us into, we understand, or at least we're beginning to, what authority is for and what dominion is for. It's for service. And so we are crowned with glory and honor, and we throw those crowns at his feet to serve him. By becoming human like us, Jesus makes it possible for us to become human again in the fullest sense, to be what we were made to be before sin broke the image of God in us. Which is why in 1 Peter 2, Peter refers to us not only as a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, but also as a royal priesthood. Again, royal, majesty, kings in this new kingdom of Christ. This is possible because Christ has been given a crown. Christ has been elevated above all things. Christ has been given dominion. Christ is preeminent. In Philippians 2, 8 through 11, Paul says this, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. And you hear it again there. That idea of a name. Being given a name that is majestic. The majestic 
name of the Father, the reputation of the Father, the Son has been elevated and crowned with this majesty. Your weakness, your humility, your smallness, none of those things separate you from God. In weakness and humility and smallness, God meets with us. We are nearest to him in our humility, in our weakness, in our smallness, because that's where God dwells among us. Christ is there in our humility, in our weakness. The weak, the humble, the small, God delights in exalting them. God delights in making much of them. God delights in cloaking them in his majesty. If we look at what the Father has given us, and we look at what the Son has done for us, how can we ever doubt that he will give us all things or that he loves us? Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.